You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. So I haven't done this new transition since we moved the handshake time to later in the service. I I haven't made this transition yet, so I don't have a real cool, catchy thing other than I'm making my transition now. (laughs) Is that good? Okay. All right. Well, what I want to talk about is this. Um, First of all, there's a note. I'll read it later. First of all is this. I don't know if anybody else ever does this, but when I pick up the book, when I pick up my Bible and read it, I have to find that I find myself having to do something. And namely, it's this. I have to constantly remind myself that the stuff I'm reading about actually happened and the people involved were normal. Now, I know this may sound weird, but typically when you pick up a book or something, you, you, you kind of detach yourself from the reality of those events, and so you're able to engage the story. But when you do that with the scriptures, it becomes unrelatable. And you look at it and you go, I, whatever, these events, they're, they're just, they're stories, or the people themselves, they're just super Christians, right? They're extra holy. I don't relate to them in any way, shape, or form. And so you look at the Bible and you go, ah, it's not for me. I don't get this. Or you water down its meaning. But the problem is when you do that, especially with passages like the one we're going to read today, one, you miss the significance You miss the honesty with which the the biblical authors are writing and allows you to be able to enter into the text a little deeper when you realize that they're real. And second, the things that are communicated, the things that we're told to go and do, you can't just brush off as, well, that's for the super Christians, because it's not. These people in here were gigantic screw-ups. They make you look good. I'm not kidding. These disciples, these guys, I had a professor, they called them the disciples. I just love that. Four of you did too. Um, that's fine. Still, three of you thought that joke was good. This is, this is going to be a good morning. Good morning. <laughs> We're down to one. We're down to one laugh. Okay, point is, point is, these disciples, they don't look real at all. But when you begin to realize that these are just normal people, they have hopes, they have desires, they have family issues, they've got a busy life, they love sugar. I mean, all these things that you and I do, they do too. And this is important because in the story we're going to look at today, this, there's something communicated in here that we all have to hear and we all need to wrestle with. Now, This story takes place at a really interesting time. It's right after the resurrection of Jesus. If you didn't know this, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is with his disciples for 40 days. And it's during that period of 40 days where he basically gives them a seminar on everything he taught for the last three and a half years with them. He just unpacks everything. Let me explain it all for you. And so he does all of this. And it's in one of those conversations, the last conversation where the disciples chime up with a question. And it's an honest question, and it's a good question, and frankly, it's a question I think every single one of us has asked in some way. We may not have asked it the way they do, but they ask a very simple question. They ask this. It's on the screen. Lord, are you at this time 
going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you go, I've never asked that question before. Please go back. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's what they're really getting at. Jesus, we get the resurrection. We get it. We understand that. That took place 40 days ago. We saw it. The resurrection proved you're the Messiah. The resurrection proved you're God. The resurrection proved a whole host of things that said your teachings really matter. That was good. But Jesus, when we look in the Bible, when we look in the Old Testament, when we read the prophets who talk about the Messiah, they constantly talk about this world peace idea. This idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to fix the world. He's going to set all things right. He's going to get vindication. He's going to, you know, build up the righteous, tear down the wicked. He's going to start fixing stuff. When are you going to do that? Is now the time? In other words, we've had three and a half years of talk about love. Three and a half years where we've done what you did. We, we loved people. When are you going to start cracking skulls? When are you going to fix this place, Jesus? Like, let's, let's get on with this. And that's what I mean. It's a totally human question. They ask it in a Jewish way. The way we would say is, how long, oh Lord? How much longer until you fix this world we live in? How much longer do we have to wait with poverty and brokenness and frustration and pain. When? We believe you're the Christ. When are you going to fix the world? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When, when is this going to happen? So Jesus responds to him, verse 7. And he says this. It's not for you to know the time nor the seasons or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, that's not your business. Guys, that's, that's not what you need to be focused on. I get you have the questions. I get you're concerned about this thing. But that's not your business. That's God's business. That's God's business. But notice something very interesting about the statement. He doesn't deny the premise of their question. He doesn't deny that one day he is going to come and fix the world. He doesn't deny that at all. He just goes, when that happens, that's not your business. And then he goes, verse 8, here is your business. This is what I want you to be about. But you, instead, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're not to worry about the big picture stuff. Don't stress about when Jesus comes back. He's coming back. Just hold on to that. He's coming back, and he's going to fix it all. But in the meantime, if you live between the period of the resurrection and Jesus' second coming, this is what you are to do. Two things. Receive the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. And out of the empowerment of the Spirit, witness. Two things. And then the story gets funny because while Jesus is saying these things, a giant tractor beam comes and Jesus starts to shake and vibrate. Well, that's what I think. And then he just goes, he's taken into heaven. This is what it says. I mean, this is me trans reading in the verse. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid from their sight. Look, I don't know what that went down. What I picture, because this is fun, is I picture Jesus sitting there, and like I said, he just starts shaking and then whoop, goes on up like a kid that releases a balloon. You know what I'm talking about? And they just start staring and going, where'd it go? Where'd it go? What happened? And then all of a sudden, two angels show up, and this is what they say. 
verse 10 and 11. They were looking up intently at the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking around? What are you doing? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven, he's gonna come back. He told you he was gonna come back. He told you he's gonna take care of it. And that's God's business to worry about when. That's not your business. You've seen him going to heaven. He's coming back. In other words, <laughs> hey, boys, what are we doing here? He just told you what you're supposed to do. He said he's coming back. Why are you continuing to stare up at the sky wondering where'd he go? What's going on? When's he going? No. Chop, chop. You got a mission. You got a role. You got duties. Let's go get on those things. And in the book of Acts, this is exactly what happens. The disciples go back to Jerusalem. They wait on the Holy Spirit to show up. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in this crazy, dramatic fashion, the disciples, being empowered by the Spirit, pour into the streets, and they witness to Jesus. It starts, if you remember, on the day of Pentecost, all the disciples, when the Spirit comes, everybody thinks they're drunk because they're having such a good time. And Peter has to stand up and go, no, no, they're, they're not drunk. And then Peter begins to witness, and he goes, let me tell you what's going on. What happened is what Jesus said was going to happen. You know who Jesus is. You killed him. He says this to the crowds, but don't worry. The grave, it couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. He's living, and he's offering you this whole new life. And they go, oh, this is great. And 3,000 people become Christians on the spot on this first day, and the witnessing doesn't stop. It just begins to snowball. And go on and on. We get into chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And Peter and John are on their way into the temple. Because this was their normal worship practice. And one day they get there and they see this crippled guy. And they go, oh, what are we going to do for this guy? Oh, we'll do what Jesus did. And so they look at him and go, look, I don't have any money. Silver and gold I don't have. But what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And so he does. In other words, they begin to do the things that Jesus told them to do. They reflect on who he is, and then they go, well, let's just play with that. Let's jump in and do this. They witness, and it snowballs. Because what eventually happens is they start in Jerusalem, they move to Samaria, they move into the ends of the world, and they end up covering the whole thing. And in the book of Acts, what's really interesting is by the time they reach the ends of the world, which would have been possibly Ethiopia, they begin working their way back to the center of the world, moving to Rome. It's a really interesting layout in the book of Acts, but what it shows for us is it models for us what it means to receive the Holy Spirit and out of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, how we are to respond, what it means to witness. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to break apart those two things because, as I said, Jesus' mandate, if you will, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the same thing all Christians are supposed to do. The same thing anybody who lives between the time of the resurrection and the time of Jesus' second coming is supposed to do. While we wait for the Father's timing to come and fix everything, we have a job. Our job, receive the Spirit, and out of the empowerment of the Spirit, be a witness. So what does that mean? Okay, in order to understand the Spirit thing, we actually have to go back to some of Jesus' teachings, prior teachings. And if you didn't know this, the... Jesus really unpacks this idea of the Holy Spirit on the night when he was betrayed. 
Now, if you remember, there's a lot of stuff that happens on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He, he washes the disciples' feet, and out of, out of that meal, he goes and he takes bread at the end of the meal, and he breaks it, and he says to his disciples, this is my body, take, eat of it. And then he says, this cup, as he takes the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood for you. Take, drink of it for the forgiveness of your sins. If you were with us on Maundy Thursday, I really broke down what it means to understand the new covenant. And if you're like, well, I don't have time for 20 minutes, I'm going to give it to you in like three, okay? Here's what the new covenant is really all about. When Jesus says we're doing the new covenant, he's essentially saying we're not doing the old covenant anymore. Very simple. We're not doing the old, we're embracing the new. Well, what was the old? The old was this. In the old covenant, the way you made yourself right with God, the way you improved your standing, the way you proved your faith, the way you proved your holiness was on your efforts, on your ability to specifically keep the law, how well you were at keeping the law. And when you messed up, God made amends in the law. He had the whole sacrifice system so you could get right again with God. But it was all dependent upon you. That's the old way. And Jesus goes, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And if you wonder why, all you have to do is read the Old Testament. Because it's a bunch of human efforts trying to make themselves right with God, and it never works. It spirals out of control constantly. So Jesus goes, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Instead, here's the new way. The new way, it's not about what you do. It's about what I have done for you. My body, broken for yours. My blood, spilled for yours. It's about what I have done for you. And then out of that, he begins to explain, in this new covenant, this is how you are to live. I got a whole new set of rules then for you. And really, he goes, it's quite simple Quite simple. I'm going to sum up all of the law in this one statement. You guys can get that off the screen, please. One statement. You are called to love. Love one another. Jesus says, new command I give you. Love one another. And they go, that's not new. That's not new. We've heard that. Everybody says this. Everybody says you love. And Jesus goes, no. I want you to love one another specifically as I have loved you. This is huge. This is huge. This is the foundation of what it means to be in the new covenant, is this understanding is it's not about what we do. It's all about what he does. All we are called to do is respond to his love. I mean, think about this. When he says, love as I have loved you, in order to do that, you first have to receive love. You first have to have been loved. And out of that love, you respond by loving. Look, I want to I make something very clear here. This fundamental truth is what separates Christianity from literally every other world religion. Every other world religion comes down to what you do. Five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism, I mean, you name it. It's about your efforts your works, your ability to either appease the gods or become a god in some way, shape, or form. And Christianity goes, yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Instead, we trust in what God has done for us. We simply say, thank you. 
that's it. And out of receiving that grace, out of receiving his love, we respond to it by doing likewise. This is huge. This is huge. But Jesus then says, yeah, but you can't do it on your own. I mean, this is all on the same night. He's unpacking all of this. On, on the, the night when he's betrayed, he's telling them all of this. Read the Gospel of John, because this is what he says. You guys can't do it, though. I know it's really simple, but don't worry. I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Can we throw the verse up? But the advocate. Advocate here, this word in Greek, it's paraclete. It really just gets down to this idea of the one who helps you, the one who aids you, the one who comes alongside and builds you up. Some verses translate this as uh, the counselor that will come alongside you and aid you. The Holy Spirit is going to come, whom the Father will send in my name, and look at what he says the Spirit is going to do. The Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Well, Jesus summed up everything he said on that night. New covenant, not doing the old ways. It's about what I've done for you. And more importantly, let me tell you how I have loved you. This is the Spirit's role is to remind us of these things. Later on, too, as he continues walking with his disciples on his way to the garden where he's going to be arrested, he says, when the advocate comes, guys, I want to be clear on this. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from me, or it's out from the Father, he will testify about me. He will witness to me. And more than that, and you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. In other words, what you see here in this, when Jesus teaches about the Spirit, the role of the Spirit is actually quite simple. The role of the Spirit is, first of all, to reveal truth and remind us who God is. Remind us specifically who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. In other words, the role of the Spirit is to remind us how God has loved us. That's the role of the Spirit, is to remind us how God has loved us so that we can respond by loving as Jesus loved us. The Spirit then empowers us to go and testify speak to the things that Jesus did. And the thing is, when you look at the book of Acts, this is exactly what the disciples did. They sat, they waited, the Holy Spirit came, and they were reminded of all the things that Jesus did. And so they pour into the streets, and they begin saying, hey, this is who Jesus is. They witnessed to what he did. They witnessed to who he was. They witnessed to what he taught. And they just said, this is, this is Jesus. And the world has literally never been the same sense. So here's the thing. A witness, by definition, is a person who simply testifies to what they know and have experienced to be true. That's it. A witness is not someone that has to necessarily connect all the dots. A witness is not somebody that has to have all the answers. A witness just speaks to what they know and have experienced to be true. In Christianity, we call this evangelism. Evangelism, which is easily, easily the scariest word in the Christian vernacular. Because when I say evangelism, I imagine some of you are having images of that guy on the pier that stands there with his Bible condemning everyone to hell. Or the guy that likes to play morality cop in your life, and that's their form of evangelism. Well, if I can just fix you, 
If I can tell you where you are wrong in every aspect, if you just lived a morally perfect life, that's not evangelism and that's not biblical in any ways. Or some of you have images of people coming to your door and you go, I don't want to go to people's doors. I don't like people. It's awkward enough when people come to me. Or others of you, when you hear the word evangelism, I imagine you just have these emotions of guilt, shame, inadequacy, because you feel like you're not good enough. You feel like you don't evangelize enough. You don't do it right. You don't have the ability to do it right. You don't know all the stuff. You don't, you got it. And evangelism becomes a burden. Evangelism is not something you look forward to. Evangelism is something you try and get out of. Well, I'll just pray for that person. I'm not actually going to open my mouth and tell them. That would just be weird. Guys, that's not evangelism at all. And more than that, I want to be clear. Go read the passage. When Jesus was taken into heaven, he didn't go, guys, I got some bad news for you. I'm going to go up to heaven where there's this unlimited Cinnabon bar while you sit here and you go and do evangelism. Sorry. He didn't say that. If anything, what he's getting at is, guys, I'm going, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. But in the meantime, you know all that cool stuff that I did? You want to go do it? You know how I began to change lives, and I, I began a movement? You want to play? You want to get in the game with me? Let's go do it. I'll give you my spirit so you can be empowered to do exactly what I was doing. You want to do that? Who wouldn't? I mean, honestly, if you could truly understand what it is that Jesus has done for you, if you truly get how radical he is, how could we want to keep our mouths shut? I know some of you are going, well, hold on, evangelism's hard. I don't have the skills. I don't know the procedures. I don't know these things. Guys, there's really not any. We have created them, sure, and some of the tools are helpful, but they're tools you don't even have to have them memorized. Look, we're going to do a six-week Bible study. That's what we're starting this Wednesday on evangelism. We're going to dig deep into what evangelism is, how we get into it. But the truth is, it's really, really simple. In fact, the bulk of that Bible study is going to be deconstructing your understanding of evangelism so that you can see how simple and easy it is and invitational and fun evangelism is. But if you're not able to make it, I'm going to tell you what evangelism is. Right here, right now. I'll tell you. You can all do this. This is as practical of a sermon as it can possibly get. There are three steps. Three steps to witnessing. Three steps to evangelism. If you are a note taker, this is like the only thing you should be pulling out for. Those of you who are not note takers, just stare awkwardly at me. <laughs> Wardles, you nailed that. That was weird. Um, nobody else saw him, but somehow Mark's tongue came out sideways. All right, three steps. Here you go. You want to do evangelism? Here it is. First, in order to witness. In order to bear witness, you have to have something to bear witness to. And you go, oh, that was so easy. Yeah. What do you witness to? You need to be able to speak to who Jesus is, what Jesus did, you know, what he taught. A basic, fundamental understanding. Well, where do we get that? Primarily from Scripture. Primarily from Scripture. We pick this thing up and we read it. But honestly, this is what we do every single week. As we come into this space, we open up the Scriptures and we go, who is Jesus? Who is God? What did he say? What did he do for us? What is life about? These are the questions we wrestle with every week. This is what Bible studies are supposed to be about. 
is gaining a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. That's it. Look, if you're still like, dude, I've read the Bible. I've read the Bible. That thing makes no sense. You're not alone. You're not alone. It is hard at times. It's like picking up Shakespeare the first time. You're not going to get it the first time. The more you get into it, the more it starts to make sense. More than that, when you go to a teacher or you get some help or you look to your friends, guys, that's what community is. Is we open our scriptures and go, hey, can you help me? Like, what do you think this is getting at? And you go, I don't know. Let's go ask pastors and try and stump them. That gives us great joy. I don't think you understand how much joy I get in trying to stump Chris and Chris gets when he stumps me. See, mine is I try and he actually succeeds. Um, but it's, we love wrestling with scriptures together, but this is the point. It's not just for wrestling's sake. It's because we want to understand who he is so that I can speak to that, so I can honestly represent him as a witness. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you want to be a witness? Here it is. You need to be able to reflect on how Jesus has personally impacted you. Now, you don't necessarily need to. I should say that. You could just simply stand up and go, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. End of the story. This is what he taught. You could do that. But it is far more significant when you are able to also speak to how he has impacted you. And so think about this. How has Jesus impacted you? How have you seen the love of God in your life? Some of us, when we think about this, we go back to the moment when we were Christians, when we became Christians, right? And some of you have some crazy stories. Some of you were people we would never leave our children around until you met Christ, and your life has radically changed. Radically changed, and that is solely to the glory of God. But others of you are like, dude, I don't have that story. My story is quite simple. I grew up in the church my entire life. I've just always been doing this Christian thing. There is no shame in that. And more than that, I want to point to this idea that I don't even believe you need to necessarily just focus on how you came to faith. I think if you believe that Jesus is real and you're continuing to walk with Jesus, you should be able to point to ways that Jesus is continuing to impact your life today. So I stopped and I reflected with my wife this week as we went on a little walk, and I was like, well, what would we say was some of the significant things that Jesus taught us in the last few years. The two for me, they all, they're kind of connected, but the two for me are this, is I have come to a much deeper understanding of what it means when Jesus says, I, I want to offer you the life that you've longed for. This idea of eternal life. It's not about what happens when you die. It's about this, this life that's available to us today. I've come to a much deeper appreciation to realize that Jesus really is the only way to experience that life, and I saw it in two ways. First, when I was going through grad school and I was working full-time, I felt I had to burn the candle at both ends. You know what I mean? I, I was, I'd get home from work and then I'd just jump into school. On my days off from work, I was doing schoolwork. I was reading, I was studying, I was writing papers, whatever it was. I never took time for myself. And if you think I'm a jerk now, imagine how big of a jerk I was back then. My poor wife. Honestly, like, I was, I was short, I was snappy. It wasn't healthy. And then Pastor Chris, and I'm so grateful for him in my life because he looked at me and he spoke truth. He goes, look, do you talk a lot about this church stuff. You talk a lot about Bible. You, you talk about how Jesus loves you. 
why aren't you listening to him? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, Jesus says you weren't created to work constantly, but you were created to rest. Remember the whole Sabbath concept? Kind of made God's top 10 most important things for us. Why are we continuing to do this? And I go, well, I can't take time off. You know, you don't understand. I've got this, that, and the other thing. If I let it go, it's going to drop and all these things. And he goes, I don't care. If you truly trust Jesus, listen to him. So I did. So I made the effort and I said, all right, I'm not going to work on Fridays. I didn't take Sundays off because Sunday was a work day for me. I didn't even do anything holy on my day off. I played video games. I watched TV. I waited for my wife to come home and we went on dates. That's it. And here's the thing, I didn't read my Bible because I spent the entire week digging it and tearing it apart. I was like, I don't want that. That was not restful for me. And I looked at that day off as a gift from God and I will tell you how that has radically transformed my life. I am no longer a workaholic by any means. I don't care about that stuff. I work hard, but when I go home, I'm with my family. I am, I am zealous for my days off. Now, I'll tell you, I wasn't legalistic about the whole thing. I had camps that would come up on a Friday. I had, you know, finals didn't happen every single week. And so there was times where I had all these papers and all these tests, but I still made time in that week to find the rest and the space. Because I said, all right, I'm going to trust this Jesus guy. That changed my life. Changed my life. Another big significant one for us was, if you don't know, Melissa and I struggled with infertility for like four or five years. It was incredibly difficult. That was the most exhausting experience of our life. It was so hard, so hard. But it was in those spaces where I came to understand who God was in a far deeper way than I could have ever experienced him before. For us, it was learning that in the midst of when God says no, that he has a better yes for a lack of a cheesy statement or for, you know, need of a cheesy statement. The easier one was, I came to understand what it meant to hope in God. And hope was not about the circumstances. It wasn't about what I wanted. It was about trusting that the one who was making the promise had the best ideas for me. It was trusting that God was truly good. It was trusting that God had a better plan in mind for me, that God knew exactly what we needed, even if it wasn't what I wanted. That was radical for us. And that space of time has given me such a heart for people who have struggled with the same things that we struggled with. And my heart breaks for them in ways that it could have never broken before. And more than that, when I see them, I speak into the grace that I have learned from Jesus into their situation. I witness to it. It's huge. But that's not that hard. It's not that hard. All I did was I think about the ways Jesus loved me. The ways his truth impacted my life. And because it was so dramatic and I allowed it to sit and sink into my head, it allowed me to see people differently. When I see a workaholic, I speak grace to them. You don't need to be doing this. You don't need to be doing this. And there's more things. This is the whole thing, guys. You want to witness? It's very simple. You need to have a basic understanding of who Jesus is, which comes from the scriptures. But second, be able to reflect on how Jesus has impacted your life. So I ask you again, how has Jesus impacted your life? Where have you seen his love? 
Where have you seen him take hold of your life and bring transformation and hope and joy and grace? Was it in your marriages? Was it in those incredibly dark times? Where was it? Was it in the good spaces? Maybe it was a time with your parent or your child. I mean, I could reflect too on just being a dad, what it means to actually have unconditional love because when that kid came out, all she did was poop and keep me awake. It didn't matter. I love her so much. And it's just a glimpse of how much God loves me. I mean, how have you seen God impact your life? Out of that, this is where the third part of how do you witness, how do you evangelize comes. It's quite natural, in fact. You speak. You share. You say it. You just, and honestly, it's not something you force. It's something that kind of just naturally bubbles up. I have a sister-in-law, and she doesn't do this anymore because we've mocked her so much for it, but she had this thing with food. She loved food, loves it, still loves food to the point it's like, oh, it oozes out of her mouth with joy. But she had this thing where when she found something she really liked, she would pick up the plate and run it over to your mouth and shovel it in. I mean, countless times, Melissa worked with her in an office, and in a professional setting, her sister's running across the office, shoveling food into her mouth. Because her sister, when something impacted her, when it was so good, she couldn't keep it to herself. It just naturally oozed out. She didn't even think, because it's weird if you actually think about it, this shoveling people's food into other people's mouth. Like, that's weird. But she, it was natural for her. And the truth is this. When I reflect on the ways that I have experienced God's love and I see another person who needs that, it, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot for me, for my heart to break, for me to sit back in that situation and realize, you know what, this person needs to hear good news. This person needs to hear about Jesus. This person needs to see how Jesus has impacted their life. It's not that hard. It's quite natural. In fact, and yeah, you're thinking, well, you stand on stage and talk about this for a living. We pay you to do this. Guys, this was more natural for me probably before I had this job because now I feel like every time I talk to somebody, they go, well, you're just the pastor. It's natural if you truly allow Jesus' love to impact you. I want to also notice while I'm talking about evangelism, those are the three things. Reflect on Jesus, allow him to impact your life, and then speak out of that. But two things I did not say evangelism was, just as we wrap up. I didn't say you had to have all the answers. Notice, I didn't say you had to be an expert on Jesus. You have to be an expert on Christianity. You have to have all the answers. Look, we have answers. I don't want to take away from this. Christianity is a highly reasonable faith. We have reasons to believe that God exists. We have reasons to believe Scripture is reliable. We have overwhelming evidence that the resurrection took place. We have that. You don't need it to evangelize. When I see somebody whose heart is broken in some way, shape, or form, when I go to a hospital or I go to uh, hold the hand of someone's widow after that person died, I have no words. I have no answers. I don't know what it is to say. I just am moved by love. And so I go. And you go, well, no, you were trained in this. You took classes. I took three whole classes in this. I know nothing about those situations. Nothing. But I move in love. I go because I care for people, and I sit there and I go, Spirit, what the heck am I supposed to say? How do I help this person? What do I say? And I just tell them about Jesus. I remind them of the love. I remind them of the promises. They're not looking for answers. Well, before you tell me about God's love for me, can you prove the resurrection? No, they don't say that. 
They don't go, well, how do you know that your Bible is actually reliable? They've never said that to me. In fact, anytime I've ever gotten into an intellectual debate about Scripture, it never ends in any way, shape, or form where that person goes, well, now I can fully believe in Jesus Christ. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is simply speaking out of how God has impacted you. Remember what a witness does. A witness speaks to what they know and have experienced to be true. That's it. The second thing evangelism is not. Evangelism is is not a way or a means of improving your standing with God. It's not. It's not a way of securing your salvation because evangelism fundamentally is about sharing what you currently possess. You love as Jesus has loved you. You first have to receive his love. You have to receive the gift he offers you, which is his grace and his salvation. It's done. It's sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered, baby. I'm yours. That was my Pastor Chrisism, because he always quotes like popular culture. Here you go. That's it. If anybody ever tells you it is, this is like the only time in your life I'm going to encourage you to be a Bible thumper. The only time, take that thing and smack that person if they ever tell you it's about earning favor with God. It's just not true. Guys, on a base level, evangelism is really quite simple. How has God loved you? Respond to that love. This Easter season, as we reflect, it's probably the easiest possible way to see how God has loved us. See, in Easter, what we realize more clearly than anything else is that God did not allow us to continue to suffer alone. God saw us struggling, saw us trying to make ourselves right, saw us (laughs) failing miserably at life, failing miserably as spouses, failing miserably as parents, failing miserably as workers, He saw all of it. And he goes, you guys are never going to get this right on your own, so I'm going to come do it for you. And by his great love for us, God sent his only son into the world to die for you and me, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, so that whoever believes in him, so that whoever receives his gift of grace, whoever responds to what it is that he offers us, that you and I would be able to tap into this incredible life that you and I were created for from the very beginning. That is evangelism. Receive his grace. Church, receive his love. If you're looking for a homework assignment, again, how has Jesus loved you? And out of that love, who can you share that with this week? Let me pray. Father, we give you glory, honor, and praise as you are such a good God, a God who loves us in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. And Lord, I confess, along with all of my brothers and sisters, that we love to overcomplicate what it is that you have done for us and make it into a whole set of religious ideals and principles and goals and metrics and realizing that's never what you intended. Lord, I pray that we would grasp the fundamental idea of the gospel that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And out of receiving your love, out of being overwhelmed by your grace and the way you continue to work in our lives through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we would just simply naturally seek to love and share what you've done in our lives with those who truly need it. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the world around us, open our eyes to our family, our friends, our children who hurt, who hunger for more in life and are trying to fill it with anything they can get their hands on when the truth is that all they really need is you. Lead us, guide us, 
by your spirit empower us. In Jesus' name.